0: are listening to Cover Stories, a deep dive into the stories behind iconic album art with Adam and Charlie O. Quick, what was the name of the Rolling Stones' first album? Time's up. It had no title and it had no band name on it either. This is the story of that first album. They played their first gig as a band July 12, 1962. Some of the band were still teenagers. At the time, sound studios ruled the record industry for Wannabe Stars. They handled song selection, arrangement, mixing, titles, packaging, all of it. Rock and roll would change all that, but not until after some epic battles. And the Rolling Stones versus Decca was an epic battle. It began early. Decca had refused to sign the new British pop group, The Beatles, to a contract. When they got the chance to sign The Rolling Stones, they were not going to repeat that mistake. They made a new one instead. The Stones recorded their first album between January 3rd and February 25th, 1964, at Regent Sound Studios at 4 Denmark Street in London. They basically did their stage act and recorded it. Their 20-year-old manager, Andrew Lug Oldham, held the tapes from the session. Remember that fact. The story of the Stones' first album covers the story of Oldham's bold ideas and Nicholas Wright's modest photographs. The Stones were basically along for the ride. Oldham was 19 and inexperienced when he began to manage the Stones. He would seem to have been a delightful mix of visionary, go-getter, flim-flam artist and hustler. In April 1963, he saw the Rolling Stones perform and by his own admission fell in love. At 19, he saw potential in the group as the anti-Beatles, so he and his seasoned partner Eric Easton negotiated a very favorable recording contract, more for themselves than the Stones. Instead of having the Stones sign directly with Decca, they set up a company, Impact Sound, which retained ownership of the group's master tapes. These were then leased to Decca. This was instrumental in Oldham's bold strategy to leave the Stones' first album untitled. He held the tapes. The record would not be made unless Decca caved to Oldham's unorthodox strategy. Nicholas Wright, a British photographer, did a simple studio photo shoot of the band that captured a sullen quintet that could not even be bothered to smile. In 1964, everybody smiled on their album cover, but the Rolling Stones. Scowling out of the shadows were way too cool for any of the tired old show business bullshit. Mick Jagger leads the group as they stand looking sideways toward the camera. He's tireless and holds his hands in the fig leaf position, pouting patiently as he awaits his moment. Dapper Charlie Watts comes next, wearing a nearly perpetual look of insubordination. Broody Bill Wyman, also tireless in a leather jacket, was squeezed into the middle position and is followed by a barely recognizable shadowy Keith Richard, enfant terrible of the Stones, who had just dropped the S from his name because it looked more pop. Brian appears slightly closer to the camera and is petulantly displaying a sense of entitlement as he stands at the back of the group and out of line. He's the only one in their old stage uniform of leather waistcoat and shirt sleeve, rather than the very colored suits favored by the others for this photograph. The anti-Beatles had been born. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit.
1: Gotta say, it's pretty cool that uh, this whole Rolling Stones journey started on Route 66. I always like the idea of that. But uh, it's funny, the Beatles and Stones really seem to be inextricably linked from birth, as it were. I, I always loved the idea of the Rolling Stones as the anti-Beatles, so to speak. Um, how aware of each other were they? Was this more drummed up by... Other parties, management, was it just a a way to catch some controversy, or what was this?
0: Well, they were certainly aware of each other, and they I don't know if you could say they were really close friends, but they were certainly friendly. The Beatles came to see the Stones. The Stones went to see the Beatles and all that sort of stuff. Probably one of the most famous stories is that Lennon and McCartney gave uh, uh, the Stones' I Want to Be Your Man as their first single and uh, the Stones, Keith and Mick, seeing how Lennon and McCartney kind of sat there and finished off a song, you know, it was a real uh, lesson in songwriting for hmm. them to, to watch these guys do it. And then there were other times. Uh, Brian Jones twice collaborated with them. When you submarine, you can hear Brian Jones clinking glasses uh, to- together. I never and knew then, that. Wow. Then, yeah. And then <laughs> uh, he, he played in um, You Know My Name. Uh, look up my number. He played the saxophone on that. Uh, the, 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 the stones you know had their big drug bust. Mick and Keith got arrested in February 67 and the day after they got out of jail, they did a song "We Love You. Uh, you know, sort of a thank you to their fans for sticking with them doing <laughs> this. And Lennon McCartney, and uh, you know, came and, and did uh, vocals on that too. So they, that so they wow. did collaborate okay. a little bit on songs. And then, of course, there was a rock and roll circus. And this wasn't the whole Beatles and Stones, but John Lennon came and he was part of the, you know, the Big Mac band and all that stuff. And he appears in the video and on the album and, and things like that. So they worked together. You know, they, they, you know there's been some talk recently of... of uh, Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones collaborating on something, you know, currently, and people were making a big deal as if this was the first time it happened, but not at all. There, you know, that's five instances that come to mind. I don't yeah. know. There could be others.
1: It, and it's interesting, you know, coming from where I'm coming from, just this entire rivalry seemed more foisted upon them as opposed to, you know, they, they weren't fanning the flames of this Beatles versus Stones.
0: Yeah, for the most part. But every once in a while, uh, Lennon or Richards would have some kind of snarky comment that would, <laughs> you know, uh, be a burr under the saddle of, of the, somebody else. And it would touch off a little uh, verbal exchange. But I think that was just, uh, you know, almost as much in good humor as it was uh, uh, serious.
1: Yeah, yeah. An- another point that uh, really comes to mind, the Stones here had less artistic control or less involvement in putting this album together. Was that just standard for a new or unproven band at the time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: you know, you don't, you don't get involved in that stuff and it was only because of some, um, hubris by Andrew Lou Goldham that they had any control at all. He just set up a little company that owned the master tapes and he could hold back the master tapes from the record company. And that gave him some leverage over the record company. And that was a very unusual thing. But, uh, uh, Andrew's a, a story of his own as, as you go through the, <laughs> the Stones' history.
1: Yeah, as much a kid as the Stones were at the time, it sounds like. Yeah, that. he was yeah. he
0: was nineteen year old manager who came and, and and solicited the Stones, and he was making it up as he was going along. But he did a, a hell of a job, you know, creating the anti Beatles and all that other stuff. That's all, you know, that all uh, lays at the feet of of Andrew Lou Goldham. It's a
1: good first gig.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so let's get back to our story. Naming your first album must be a momentous occasion. The Stones never named their first album. Their manager took care of that. He gave it no title at all. He said, I did not want the Stones LP to have some inappropriate title. Everyone knows who they are. That's why we don't need their name on the cover. Decca Records balked at Oldham's suggestion of no title or group name on the album, but Oldham held the tapes. Decca balked in the press. So did Oldham, who still held the tapes. Advance orders for the album grew to over 100,000 during this standoff. This is compared to advance orders of 6,000 for the Beatles' first album. The brass young Oldham stood his ground, and Decca relented. The group's first LP went out untitled, redefining total self belief, impudent insubordination, and unprecedented arrogance. No title, no band name. Oldham probably would have removed the Decca emblem had he been able to do so. This was just one of many acts of extreme Oldham hubris. To summarize, in defiance of Decca Records' entire marketing department, Oldham insisted that the cover showed neither band name nor album title. It would be just a glossy picture of the five standing sideways with heavily shadowed, unsmiling, scowling faces, turned to the camera. No rock group is believed to have ever done that before. It was regarded by most as equal to commercial suicide. A critic said, In their vainglorious, quintessentially British arrogance, the Rolling Stones insist, get their way and go on to spend the next 60-plus years imperiously traversing the globe under the banner of the greatest rock and roll band in the world, a description for which they even own the copyright. It's a Stones thing. It's a way of life. Captioned headshot photos of the five members are also found on the rear of the cover. Wright's portraits begin from left to right with Mick Jagger, vocals and harmonica, Brian Jones, Guitar, Harmonica, and Vocals, Bill Wyman, Bass, Guitar, and Vocals, Charlie Watts, Drums, and Keith Richard, Guitar. Decca fans, and others had to call the album something, and the Rolling Stones' unnamed album was a bit awkward. The reverse side of the album shouted the band's name in the largest font imaginable, and so the album was simply referred to as the Rolling Stones. But now you're well enough informed to know that anyone who refers to it in this way is sorely misinformed. Oldham's hubris continued on the back of the cover in his first album opus, Found in the Sleeve Notes. He begins it with these humble words for a first album. The Rolling Stones are more than just a group. They are a way of life. Bill Wyman Stone's bassist said the opus was... A brilliant quote which encapsulated the philosophy of the band so succinctly and was absolutely true by now, whichever side of the fence you sat. No title and no words. The first time this had been done. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit.
1: So whether you call it hubris or naivete, the decision to not put your band's name on your debut album, is quite a move. Personally, I love it. And since we're uh, in the game of some Beatles bashing, they famously weren't uh, weren't brave enough to do this until Abbey Road, nearly the end of their career. How involved were the Stones in this decision?
0: Well, I don't think they were involved at all. This was Andrew Lou Goldham. We were mm-hmm. speaking about him uh, last time. He was the 19-year-old manager who came in, and he had an idea that he was going to Build a rebel band. He was building the anti-Beatles, and and one way to do that was with this, with this hubris that we don't have to put a, a, a title on there. We don't have to put the band's name on there because everybody in the world knows the Stones, or soon will know them, and that's just the attitude that he took. Uh, he got away with it in in uh, England when the the U.S. version was released. Uh, the U.S company was london and they weren't willing to do it they said that that might work because they're known in, in england mm-hmm. but nobody knows them here so uh you know so they put i can't remember what it's called the,
1: london's L- newest maker yeah yes, or, yeah, london's yeah. Newest yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah so you know th- that was sort of the compromise there but it was interesting because af- after looking at that i realized that the stones have done this seven times left the name and the title off the album I believe that uh, yes, it's only now. rock and roll. Number one and number two, no security. Uh, Their Santanic Majesty's request The bigger bang. Hot rocks. They're uh, the ones that that you know I was thinking of before. That that there's no title, no band name, no no album title or anything on it. So it's a little bit of a tradition for them uh, to be doing this. But it's it's all due to Andrew Love uh, vision for the Stones.
1: Sure, and once you're established, that makes sense. Once you actually are. The biggest rock yeah. and roll band in the world, but on your debut album, it's yeah. quite a bold. It's quite a bold statement. Yeah, uh, it is. Part of their mission statement, yeah. and I think about all the bands that could have tried this or perhaps did try this, and are just relegated to the dustbins of music history. I, I had a tough time finding any other debut albums by any band in which the band name doesn't <laughs> appear. It's just. Uh, I had a question about the vinyl, the uh, you know the UK version. Would would their name have been on the spine? I mean,
0: it doesn't appear anywhere. That's incredible. On in the front, the back, or incredible. You know, it's it's just not there. It's, yeah, it's you know, the Rolling Stones.
1: Now, was that confidence from the band there, from the word go, or no, is it well, more an old? I don't, I don't think so.
0: Or? I think their business was music, and the fact that they had a. a Recording contract must have put them, you know, over the top, and and all of this other stuff of all the details. How do we do this, and who does what, was just, you know, stuff that a, a bunch of young guys just didn't know. So Andrew was taking care of all that, and he ran with it. He he really uh, uh, relished in in making those kinds of decisions.
1: He certainly ran with yeah. that. Did, was there an element of feeling strong armed by Oldham? You think for the Stones then, or were they just happy to? have anyone interested enough to take care of this stuff.
0: Yeah, he was getting them gigs, he was getting them, you know, helped to get them a, a contract and all that sort of stuff. So I think the the Stones were probably over the moon the fact that they had a young guy, somebody that they could relate to. Uh, you know, he uh, and Oldham had uh, some, you know, more experienced people that he worked with and relied on a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, I think it was probably a very um A symbiotic kind of relationship, you know, the the stones and and Oldham feeding off of each other. Uh, As time wore on, and as Andrew got bigger and his ego grew, and he got more clients and all that sort of stuff, then I think uh, you know maybe the act, uh, you know, wore a little bit thin. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah.
1: Cool. Would you say there was ever a time where the Oldham relationship started to feel more like an albatross?
0: Uh, I don't know if it's an albatross. He certainly um, uh, wore out his welcome. Uh, he had made all the changes. The stones were big enough. They were now comfortable and competent with all the things that he used to do. They they knew more about mixing music and and all that. And in, an interesting thing I think was uh, uh, let's see what album it was. Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Uh, you were talking earlier about uh, Andrew's boldness in not putting a name or a title. Uh, on the album cover. Mm-hmm. And the album covers were something that he always messed with. You know, he, he would do sleeve notes and, and all these screeds that he would put on. And we'll talk about those in, in future podcasts, I'm sure. But um, what what I thought was interesting is during the time when the Stones were, were making their "Satanic Majesty's request, uh, they had Michael Cooper, a very accomplished photographer. He had photographed the Beatles' pepper cover and all that sort of thing. And uh, one day they came into the studio and they walked up to uh, uh, to Andrew and said, Michael's going to be doing the cover. And basically, we don't need you anymore. Uh, Cooper sent uh, Andrew a letter and said, here's how I like to work. And the, the way he liked to work didn't include him. <laughs> and, uh, and and Jared Mankowitz, who was the Stones photographer, up to the point that Michael Cooper came on the scene, Uh, He said, you know, he he remembers that day and he said, that's when they moved uh, Andrew out. They were done with him. And he said, and and they were done with me, too. They were moving on to bigger talent.
1: Almost to a day.
0: Wow. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's tough being in the stones. uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. In the stone shadow. Well, let's get back to our story. Nicky Wright not only holds the honor of photographing the Stones for their first record album, he also established himself in Great Britain, photographing such other music notables as the Beatles, the Animals, Jeff Beck, the Beach Boys, the Everly Brothers, Fats Domino, the Birds, the Monkees, Ray Charles, Duke Ellington, and many more. Wright's first visit to the United States came in the 60s when he was commissioned to travel with the Rolling Stones' American tour. This is where he met his true love, photographing American automobiles. Nicky lived and worked primarily in the U.S. after he began photographing cars. He returned to England one more time to make peace with his mother and have a reunion with the Stones. He did both, then ended up in the hospital with pneumonia where he died January 17, 2000. Inserts are part of the album art and this one had a poster version of Wright's cover photograph. The same Wright photograph was recycled yet another time to be the cover for the Rolling Stones' U.S. debut album. No title and no name worked in England where the Stones were already known, but the band had no established image in the U.S. So London Records, Decca's U.S. affiliate, made sure the American release contained not only the band name, but also the cringe-inducing tagline, England's newest hitmakers. Absent an official title, this has gone on to become the de facto name of the first album in the U.S. In the early years, the Stones would release a United Kingdom version of most albums and a U.S. version. Sometimes the cover art was the same or a modified version of the original release, as is the case with their first U.K. and U.S. studio albums. Sometimes an album was released on one side of the ocean, but not the other, such as 12x5, a U.S. only release. In some cases, the album art was recycled, such as when the art for the U.S. 12x5 LP was recycled for use on the U.K. LP, The Rolling Stones, number two. The Stones' first album found its audience within days of release on both sides of the Atlantic. I'd be willing to bet that anyone who bought that first album who is still around is still eagerly awaiting the next Stones album. You see, Andrew Oldham was right. Rolling Stones are a way of life. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit.
1: So the idea of having both U.S. and U.K. versions of an album is long established as is a uh, U.S. release having a Japanese version or, you know, obviously a U.K. version. To me, though, it's always felt like nothing more than a sales tactic. You buy the original, you buy the import. And while imports are widely available and certainly more expensive, I'm just wondering, was it possible to track down a vinyl copy of the U.K. version when you were coming up? I mean, in 19, what 64? Was that even a possibility?
0: Well, you would have to know that one exists. And, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I certainly didn't know this was going on. It wasn't until many years later, you know, maybe I ran across the a copy and I thought, What is this? You know, it doesn't have the words on it, you know, um, England's newest band or, yeah. or you know, whatever the, the US version said. And so, first of all, I don't think too many of us were aware of it. Now I'm sure there were people who were hip to to the music industry or or magazines and new uh, and to a certain extent, it was marketing uh, in the u k the the stones had an e p an extended play mm-hmm. you know it was a, it was a thirty three speed it was more than a forty five had several songs. uh they couldn't release that in the United States because uh, London was saying there's no market for extended play in the u s you know what what we want are albums, and so there were songs that were released in the u k that never got released in the u s and so later on. You know when they were doing these, um, even though it was the uh, the U.S. and the U.K. release of album number two or album number three, or even the same uh, cover art, or even sometimes the same title, the playlists mm-hmm. were different because they were always catching up. Things had been released in one country, not in the other country, and that went on until uh, actually uh, their Satanic Majesty's request was the very first. Stones album that was the same cover, the same playlist, same release date on both sides of the Atlantic so it, it went for quite a while that they were doing this and, and of course you know the, the Beatles were, were doing this you know the, the same way so um, you know um, those who were aware of it I'm um, sure they could have found ways to do that but it's not like you would ever encounter one accidentally in the US it just didn't work that way yeah. uh, because of the way records were distributed and all that sort of thing
1: Now, were you actually hearing these singles? I mean, you know, in in the U.K., even now, an album will be released, and sometimes up to even three months later, the U.S. version will be released. But were you hearing these singles when they dropped overseas, or was there, you know, for a a radio term, a seven-second delay of a number of Well, there were
0: a lot of singles that were released initially by the Stones that never uh, got to the U.S., not Fade Away, which was always one of my favorite songs, because of the emotional attachment I had to it, being one of the first singles that the Stones had in the U.S., uh, charted at number 48 in the U.S. and number three uh, in the U.K. Uh, And that was the very first uh, song that the Stones had that that charted in the U.S. But then after that, there were songs, uh, Little Red Rooster was number one in the U.K., was never released in the United States as a single. So, you know, it was one of those... Uh, songs buried on the side of an album—you didn't know that it had been a single. You certainly didn't know that it had been number one in the UK. And so they were very different, very separated markets, much more so than today, when you know when we have when we live in this digital age and, and where sure. you know, things yeah. happen simultaneously at all points around the world because of of the way we're all connected. It just wasn't you know like that at all when the Stones uh, started off.
1: Now, and obviously you have an academic bent to your interest in the Stones uh in addition to just a lifetime of fandom but for collectors and completists of their actual music is there a definitive version is the UK version considered the definitive version in most cases
0: uh, yeah i think so that was the first you know they they almost always came out first and so when you talk about you know number 1 you're talking about the album cover that we're talking about that had no band name, no title or anything on it, you know, and then, you know, sort of the, 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 the side story is, oh, when number one came out in the U.S.,
1: you know, it, yeah. it, it
0: looked a little different.
1: So wait, so we're not calling this self-titled. That's a no-no, I'm guessing, right?
0: Uh yeah it, it's it's <laughs> yeah uh, uh, well it doesn't you can call it what you like I okay. suppose all right uh, Rolling Stones number one I guess is probably what I've referred to it as but it has no real official title because it was never given one right on so that's it for today and we hope to see you next time next time number
1: two.